Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. As it is over two years since we launched FuturePod, we thought it would be interesting to check in with our previous guests and see how their work and thinking may have changed since we last spoke to them. So we have created a new FuturePod series called The Re-Interviews. Today we are re-interviewing Richard Holmes. Richard is a philosopher-activist. We originally interviewed Richard in Podcast 11, entitled Alternative Thinking About Today and Tomorrow. We also spoke to him in Podcast 40 as part of the foresight in a time of coronavirus, when the virus outbreak was just starting and he was observing it from his home in Thailand. And we spoke to him for a third time in Podcast 64 with his conversation with Zia Sardar when they discussed what's next for the field of foresight. So you can clearly see that Richard has been a tremendous supporter of FuturePod. Welcome back, Richard. Great to speak to you again. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be speaking to you as well. Although I wish I was in Melbourne doing this. <laughs> yes, we. Yes, the uh, the virus has been pretty pretty carefully locked down, and the weather today, as you know, Melbourne is quite damp and damp and cloudy. Well, I've got the opposite, Peter. I, I, I'm in the heat here. <laughs> I know you have. So, Richard, what new things have you learned since we last spoke and what are you working on now? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. And for me, it's a very broad question because one of the things I've always done throughout my career, right from very early on, was I was able to pivot to do something else when I realized that something wasn't working or you know, it wasn't working the way I th- worked out the th- way I thought it would be. So, I mean, for example, way back in my career, I was convinced to start in medicine and I was in medicine until I worked in pediatric oncology, which at the time was yeah, really just palliative care. There was nothing much we could do. So I gave yeah. that away very quickly and returned <laughs> to music, writing music. And that uh, eventually I got fed up with that and and fell headlong into management consulting. Well, management first, then management consulting. So I've been able to, I have this entrepreneurial streak, I suppose, and I'm able to pivot when needed. And this past 12 to 14 months has necessitated yet another pivot, which at my age, 76, is saying something, isn't it? So what happened was, I mean, I'm, normally I would be giving 40, 30 to 40 keynotes a year. That mm. dried up, and that was my major source of income. Mentoring dropped off. People dropped off. People weren't spending money. All the face-to-face stuff, of course, strategy work dried up as well. So I've been learning an awful lot, Peter, about other things that I can do and discovering that a lot of that is focused on my thinking and my writing. Hmm. Uh, And so the pivot has been really drawing on, I suppose, my strengths and just forgetting for the time being what I get a real kick out of, which is working live with people. I mean, those opportunities didn't dry up entirely. I was working 
here with PepsiCo, for example, the leadership team in PepsiCo around Foresight. And I've been working online with some clients, but it's not the same, is it? I mean, no. uh, working face-to-face with clients is just, it, it just is, it's, 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 it's like electricity. It's, it, well, it's skin to skin. Yeah. Things that you talk about around sense making and people just, you know, sitting in not knowing. And that's kind of when it starts. That's that's really the juiciest time you'll get. And it's hard to do not knowing spaces um, across the bandwidth of a camera and a, and a screen. Well, also this this not knowing has been interesting for me because it's the the, the pandemic has given me a real gift which is to look very deeply into my own prejudices and belief systems and going as deeply as possible into trying to understand the the underlying code that has driven me throughout my life and that allows me to endure in the way I do. A lot of my thinking has been devoted... I'll give you some ideas. a lot of my thinking has been really around narrative and the importance of narrative at different levels. Because as we know, and probably everybody listening to this podcast, narrative management is probably the key to how societies are controlled mm. today. And so it's especially interesting looking into the assumptions and tenets behind the different worldview narratives in China and the US, for example, and to note the similarities as much as as the divergences in in the, the narratives. So I've been doing a lot of thinking into trying to analyze my own brain and mind and thinking, and also the the narratives that persist today that allow so many positive things to persist, but also a gradually grinding us down into a situation where we will soon be faced with a perfect storm of emergencies. Yeah. I've been interested and I, and I am interested as to what you think has, if anything, has changed in the, what I call the, the typical business as usual executive thinking style as a result of really the last you know, 18 months? I, d- I don't think anything much has changed. In fact, well, it's difficult just to make a general statement like mm. that. So in in many of the large corporations, I've seen them trying to dig in their heels and just keep doing what they've always done. Now, relating that to narrative, what I find interesting, very, very interesting indeed, are the weasel words and manipulative <laughs> phrases that are now being rolled out by oh, the, the World Economic Forum, for example, in terms of its great reset, quote-unquote, yes, which is really using technology more smartly to embed the capitalist ethos more effectively. We see it in the... Um, the words of the British Academy of Business, for example, who've just redefined the, quote, the purpose of business in a way which is really, again, it's just word playing and it's deceptive in that it's trying to say, well, of course, we're not really just about making profits, but we are actually. Mm. 
And, and so I think a lot of companies are doing that. The, the wiser ones, the more introspective businesses are actually becoming much more entrepreneurial. And instead of just capturing technology or ideas to make old business models more palpable, they're actually harnessing what we've got at the moment to do something really different. The good good example there would be a contrast between Uber, for example, which is still, I mean, a company very much dependent on the extractionist economy and and model of how you make money, how you make profits. And in Texas, a little company cooperative actually called Drive Austin, which is, it's a cooperative, it's a mutual society. And so the only people that benefit are the drivers rather than a, a corporate that's behind it. Mm. So there are, there are our startups, particularly and smaller entities in the peer-to-peer commons cooperative mutual space that are actually harnessing the technologies we've got at the moment, whatever they are, and using them to better advantage and not just focused on uh, the old extractionist predatory uh, and crony capitalism. Hmm. In your Corona podcast, because you know we got you fairly early in the process, you were clearly seeing, while there was obviously tremendous risk in the virus, you also saw the tremendous opportunity the pause, the opportunity to actually look at what a world is like, what what is the actual climate response when we actually start to take intensity out of the economy and out of out of the way we live. I mean, do you think any of that is going to stick, or are we are we just back on planes and back onto onto high intensity first chance we get? Uh, no, I don't think it'll be first chance. It might take a while to come back to what was. So, for example, in Australia, I know of two large corporations that have surveyed their staff, who've been working from home, of course, and have decided that there's a hybrid model emerging with 80% of their people really not wanting to go full-time back to the uh, CBD office, but are, are better prepared to put up with a with a mix of things. So they work from home, or or perhaps in a co working space which is closer to their home for two or three days a week, and go to the office for the for the rest of the week. And I I think probably we're going to see those kinds of hybrids working more and more. In some sectors, of course, it's going to take much longer. I mean, I. Th- Forgetting all the hype around getting international travel back soon, I think the the wisdom in that space in speaking to a number of companies in in air travel uh, just recently, and especially the Asian airlines, is that we're likely to be in a a hanging holding pattern until twenty twenty four. So, I mean, the, the timescales are very, very different. It's, it's interesting that, yeah, I did catch it early. And unfortunately, I was doing a lot of breakfast television at that stage because I was one of the few commentators on foreign affairs mm. that had foresight under my belt as well. And, and shows were wondering, you know, what was going to happen. But I was on the wrong side of the narrative there because the official narrative was alarm, panic, shutdown, mm. lockdown, masks, everything. And it wasn't following the science at all. It was just sheer panic. And when I said this publicly, of course, the 
the broadcasters didn't like that because it it differed from the official narrative. So my time on air was very limited at that stage. <laughs> I mean, you must have seen in Australia the we've really had a couple of incidents now of state governments that locked down very hard being rewarded by their local electoral people. You know, people have said, you know, thank you for locking us down and keeping us safe. So we've seen that at the state level. And we had that quite remarkable situation, which I'm sure you noticed, where we actually had Australian citizens in India and the government simply saying, if you try to return to Australia, we will we will charge you. Well, you see, there are two things going on. First of all, one of the things I was saying that, that they didn't like, obviously, this was in January, February, 2020. I've just I'd come back to Thailand from Myanmar. So it was just, yes, it was early February. So it was just before all those closures happened. And what I was saying was you need to act quickly to isolate those most in risk. And that didn't happen. And what happened was a much more authoritarian approach under the smokescreen of the pandemic Mm. to roll out in some cases, as with the Commonwealth government in Australia, agendas that were already prepared and just waiting in the wings. And it's much easier for state and federal politicians to clamp down uh, with restrictions and suppression orders and stuff like that is uh, like that than to be more open and less nanny-like in, in the reaction. And, and to a great extent, of course, when, when you've got the, the kind of government like you've got in power at the moment in Canberra, that is their, that's their inclination, it's their preference, it's, it plays to their strengths. But at the, on the other hand, you've also got the fact that in, in a country like Thailand, for example, where for the whole of 2020, I just mentioned this to you before we came on air, for the whole of 2020, the total number of infections was, I think, less than a 1,000. Hmm. And we were doing very well in a very compliant society. There was no harsh lockdowns or restrictions of, of any kind, really. Life was more or less normal. But now, because of complacency... We're seeing a great many more restrictions imposed upon us because we're getting about 2,000 new infections a day and the, the mortality rate is going up. So I, I think we, if we had acted less politically and more in alignment with the science and quarantined the unhealthy and those likely to be really sick from this really nasty virus early on, we could have done much better and have avoided a lot of the economic implications that we're now needing to grapple with. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you now, now I know you don't like me using the term futurist, but I'm going to ask you to put a futurist hat on and say, well, what have we learned about governments and society and and the human response to what I'm going to argue in terms of the challenges we are going to face? This has been a rehearsal. Oh, yes, there's no doubt about that. What have you learned about the social, political, industry, human response to to challenge that we're going to possibly foresee in the future when the big ones start to land? Well, this is very complicated because 
I'm, yeah, okay, putting my futurist hat on, but remember, I work in the expanded now of, <laughs> of consciousness. So I go back over my lifetime. Let me go back 75 years, and I've watched and monitored very carefully human behavior over that time. But if we could look uh, more granularly at the situation of viruses and understand the epidemiology of this particular virus and this coronavirus family particularly, what we need to be doing is setting money aside for really in-depth research for a pan-coronavirus vaccine. And that's not being done. And a lot of the conspiracy theories that arose during the course of last year, particularly involving, you know, I mean, chips in vaccines and goodness knows mm. what and Bill Gates being something or other. I mean, a whole load of new conspiracies uh, were, were out there. Conspiracy theories were out there. And I think it was because if you looked at the money trail and the involvement of people like Anthony Fauci, for example, in his personal investments in Big Pharma, like the company Moderna, for example, um, who are now going to benefit. And Pfizer's come out just recently with an estimate, I think, of some $26 billion of profit from this virus. What we're actually not doing is investing in the gaps between epidemics in pan-coronavirus or pan-whatever-it-is vaccines that would allow us to have a, an inoculation one time only rather than each year, which is looks like what is shaping up with the current range of vaccines. Even, even the mRNA vaccines, the new vaccines coming out, look as though they'll only be effective mm. for one year or, or a, a little bit more than that. So at a granular level, We've got no change in this predatory extractionist paradigm that we're in where capitalism thinks it can just go on doing what it's always done and everything will be hunky-dory. Everything is a business opportunity, isn't it? Yes, and the, the, and, but there are so many different facets of that. I mean, over the past 75 years, I've also seen very patchy results led by people like Michelle Bowens, for example, who you know well, mm. uh, in terms of the commons and peer-to-peer -peer initiatives and small startups that are doing something different. As you, as you know, I'm on the, the board or was an advisor to River Simple in Wales, which is a small company designing hydrogen vehicles, green hydrogen, by the way, not grey hydrogen. It's a niche business, but and so it's not wanting to conquer the world like a Toyota or a mm. BMW, for example, but it, it will have its niche and it will do a lot of good because it's it's adhering to principles that are so important for business going into the future. But most businesses still are unable to do that. And even large companies, like one client of mine is the Bank of America, for example, and they're very serious about their ESG agenda. This is the Environment, Social and Governance Agenda being implemented by the bank, but it's still more check the box than not. Mm. Can I pivot to something I've always, I don't think I've actually asked you this in any of our previous interviews, but you are now practicing Buddhist and the notion of where do you think spirituality, belief, 
is kind of going at the same time because we know looking back in history that significant epochs in history have have often had a flow-on effect to how people look at the outer world or the inner world. So where do you think we might be heading in some of those things? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. And there's certainly a rise in what I would define as spirituality as opposed to organized religion, Mm. per se, which is something very different. I've been looking at that very closely, as it happens just recently, in doing an analysis of a comparative analysis between the origins of the Chinese or Sinic worldview and the Occidental or Western mm. worldview. Now, with the Occidental uh, worldview, it's, it's kind of arisen out of Western cosmology, which is deeply embedded in religious faith mm. and, and things like scientific realism and you know, Cartesian dialectic and stuff like that. But the Sinic worldview is not. The Sinic worldview actually is quite secular, although it goes back to Confucianism, uh, those elements of deep spiritual philosophy in terms of the meaning of life and the balance in everything, the two are quite different. That's one of the things that I find interesting because I would claim at the moment, let's make a big leap, uh, a giant leap here, I would claim that the greatest threat on the planet at the moment to humanity is the US empire, which is in decline and it's beginning to lash out or willing to lash out in its death throes. And the Chinese, I won't call it an empire yet, although it is it is developing in that kind of fashion. But it, I think the, the Chinese at the moment are have the moral ascendancy mm. uh, in the world and are also actually doing far more good in the world yep. than than the US has done over the past six decades being at war all the time. So it's an interesting contrast in the kind of spirituality that you get in Eastern mysticism and how that can be secularized to nevertheless play out in different ways across the society. Now, another thing which popped up again recently since we spoke, and this is not a, this has just come to the fore, but I don't think it's has just emerged right now, has been this, what sits under a whole sort of umbrella of things that popped up during Black Lives Matters. And then we had the woke movements that then started you know, striking back at the way we look at history and historic figures and statues. And so, the, and it seems, it seems as though this is being driven at by, if you like, younger generations rather than the older established generations. Are we looking at a kind of social intellectual burgeoning amongst the young or is this actually someone's agenda that simply is being cleverly marketed to young people? I think the latter but we have to be very careful here in a demarcation between the kinds of new socio-political movements that have arisen in the Greta Thunberg generation for example Mm. the Milk Tea Alliance between students in Taiwan Thailand and Hong Kong, and the impulse for their awakening to uh, some of the realities that perhaps they were not aware of before or not to such a great extent. And in a nation like the US, the amount of money that is coming to, to agitate and support those new movements 
in in a country which is verging on the edge of well, it's going over the edge of civil disobedience to potential mm. social or civil conflict, civil war. So I think we have to be very careful in distinguishing the underlying impulses and whether or not money is involved in some form or other to support um, agitation and disobedience. There has been some seemingly remarkable coordinated responses. I'm thinking of the TikTok kids in in Korea who kind of took down the, the Trump convention that was going to happen in, in Tulsa. Mm. I'm wondering if those what appear to be just simply a technologically literate generation who are developing a political awareness, like you say, they're starting to wake up and realize what you know what they're going to live with. You know, whether that's real, whether that's actually sustainable and whether we're going to see more of that. Oh, I think we'll see more of it. I think I think as people wake up to the the reality of the world we live in where if if you just look statistically at the at the wealth in the world who owns that wealth or who owns the means of production of that wealth and how that is then applied and who benefits and who doesn't benefit i think there is no doubt that we will be heading for more social awareness, civil disobedience. I, my, my hope is that uprising will be a mindful uprising rather mm. than a bloody uprising. But uh, I'm, I'm sure over the next 30 years, it's almost an inevitability that we'll see much more of this driven by youth for one obvious reason. They don't want to inherit the world my generation has created for them. No. They don't want it, and they want us to get out of the way, and they want to be able to correct our mistakes, or actually what they want us to do is correct our mistakes, and we refuse to do it. You know, Although we, use, we nod our heads and say, oh, yes, of course, we will do that. We're not doing it and, or not doing it fast enough. So what they really want is for us to take action, and we're not. But inevitably, we're stealing from their future, and they know that. And they're going to rise up against that. From where you sit and how you see things emerging, I mean, what are the sensible things for people to start really doing how they actually make sense of the world, what they use for sources, and also the actions that people should, you know, could be starting to investigate going forward that might make their situation more sustainable? Uh, well, I think always my answer to a question like that is, the answer is do what you can. That means actually do things that make material and uh, psychological, emotional sense for yourself. And that there are things we can do that we know will benefit us. So, for example, we could eat less meat and make sure that whatever meat we eat is organically farmed. We could drive vehicles that are coming onto the market now, although it looks as though it's difficult in Victoria because you're going to have a tax on electric vehicles, <laughs> but we could do things like that. There are things within our domain that we can actually do and make us feel better about we're actually doing something. And my advice would always be try and keep it at that level unless you have direct lines of influence into higher levels within the society. I mean, I've been very fortunate in being able to work 
with some of the most influential and successful people in the world. And I think why I say I've been fortunate is because they, by and large, have listened to what I've said and tried to understand it and within their scope of power and influence have tried to change what is being done. That's why I have much more an, an emotional allegiance to Asia and China particularly, because it's so much easier to do things and to get the people who are in leadership and uh, incumbent positions of power and authority to actually listen and take heed. And it's, it's just easier, whereas in, in the US, which I fear, I dread, even though I've got so many American friends who are very dear and close to me, I'm not talking about them, I'm talking about the empire itself, the, the White House, the Pentagon, the Senate, and the, you know, the the people behind the scenes who actually run the deep state in the US, I'm very fearful of their unpredictability and yet certainty of their global hegemony and their righteousness about that. Mm. So I would say, in answer to your question, keep what you do within the scale of what you what it is possible to do. Don't step outside of that, because if you try to do that, um, you can get so easily down and depressed. Yeah. I mean, Martin Luther King posed the moral dimension of our actions, and he said it, he always spoke of the importance of speaking truth to power. Now, mm. you mm. aren't saying we shouldn't speak truth to power. No. No, quite the opposite. But you can't do it alone. So, for example, at the moment, we have in Canberra a government that is imposing more than its authority is legally able to do. And that will be challenged in terms of this Indian um, situation that you mentioned. We have very much an authoritarian ethos that will try and get away with as much as possible in order to remain in power, not just to not just to do what it can do by patching up the present, which most governments do um, habitually, but this government will do anything it can to stay in power. And the connection also with the, the religious beliefs is, is a danger of certain individuals. When you look at the number of people in cabinet, for example, who go to the same church or share the same Pentecostal faith, it's, I find that absolutely frightening. Mm. You can't approach the Australian government as an individual and be heard. The only way you can get your voice heard is in coalition. So you have to connect. You have to join networks. You have to, uh, in order to have your voice heard, you have to make a din. And the din can only be made, that clamour can only be made by large groups of people. There's a wonderful word I was reminded about, which is making a ruckus. Mm. And to some extent, we have to make a ruckus, don't we? Well, I've been doing that individually all my life, and it's not <laughs> a comfortable thing to be doing, let me tell you. I mean, so many people think I'm just heretical or to be ignored. As you know, within the field of foresight, I'm either called a Cassandra, which is, is probably the worst thing you could call a futurist, 
or uh, my my manager actually at one stage called me a latter-day Nostradamus, <laughs> which is probably even worse because, you know, he was so vague and you can apply any of his quatrains to anything that's <laughs> happening in the world today. So, so I mean, I'd, I have very limited traction within the foresight community, I think, even, even, even you know, amongst my own tribe. So... So creating a ruckus isn't a comfortable thing to do. Anything you want to close with for the FuturePod community? Yes, I, I think one of the things I've been doing, I haven't told you what I've been no, doing, but anyway. There you go. One of the things I've been doing is I produced a series of 10 episodes uh, on unpacking conspiracies. I think it's called Conspiracies Unpacked, actually, for Verizon on Media. And there, I think we're at number six this week. Every Thursday, one is released. I did that in conjunction with Danny Clayton, uh, who is an incredible uh, young guy, fact seeker and challenger. And that's been great fun. But one of the things I learned in doing that was always try to find new avenues for your voice, new new platforms, new channels for what you want to say in order to be heard because these are changing all the time mm. and it's all very well that i write i write this blog the hames report and it's read by a good number of people but just recently uh branching out into that kind of media digital media has led me also to the possibility of working on a full-scale documentary drama on artificial intelligence and the ethics in that so it's not advice, but in in view of the fact that last year, or the, just the year before, I think it was, I challenged the Foresight community here in Bangkok at the APFN conference, saying that, I forget what I called it, but it was very challenging, uh, you know, in terms of where to Foresight, uh, because I said it's failed, basically Foresight has failed. Mm. Uh, which, which was a very bold statement, of course. But I think the the thing we need to do as futurists always are to find new opportunities, new ways of getting our voices heard, because being able to think in ways that allow foresight to come to bear on whatever it is you're doing is so critical. So, so I would just urge people listening to this iPod not to rest on their laurels, not just to do what they've always done and to think it will still always work, but to seek out new ways of amplifying their voice. Great. Thanks, Richard. It's always good to have a chat. Thank you for taking some time out to chat with the FuturePod community. Always a great pleasure, Peter. Take care and stay safe. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.